A feast week for the ages across college basketball is finally in the books. We flipped the calendar into December, which means we are at the halfway point in non-conference play, which can only mean one thing. The start of Big East play is right around the corner. We are exactly four weeks away from the beginning of all that. Welcome inside the Igloo. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'm Tim Best. And like I said before, Feast Week was one for the ages and it was simply chaos personified. Jerry Carino said it best on Twitter. The top 25 ballot for voters to fill out after Feast Week it has to be one of the toughest, if not the toughest, to fill out every single year. And the results in the poll definitely reflect that. When you have certain results happening, Michigan State going down to Virginia Tech down in Maui, Duke having their 150-game non-conference win streak at Cameron Indoor snapped at the hands of Stephen F. Austin, you could tell that it was a chaotic week. And you also had Michigan, who went from 12 votes a week ago winning the battle for Atlanta to stay unbeaten all the way up to number four in the top 25, which is going to set up a huge game tomorrow night between Michigan and the now number one team in the country, the Louisville Cardinals, who move into that slot thanks to number one Duke going down. Back to the Big East, though. Let's talk about what the new AP poll shows. Seton Hall is still the highest-ranked team in the Big East. After a 2-1 week in the Bahamas, they are now number 16 in the poll. They dropped from number 13, where they started last week. Villanova dropped a bit in the poll. They dropped one spot from 22 to 23. Butler, after winning... The Hall of Fame Classic out in Kansas City last week. They move up to number 24. They were on the cusp of the top 25 last week. And winning that tournament propels them into the number 24 spot. And Xavier, who was number 25, they fall out. Despite winning their only game last week against Lipscomb on Saturday, they fall just outside of the top 25, just two spots out. Uh, Utah State is the team that currently holds on to that number 25 spot right now. And the big thing, I talked about DePaul. They should have gotten just a few votes maybe a week ago, at least a week ago. I wanted it the week prior as well. But nonetheless, I think the nation is finally getting put on notice with DePaul because now they have 18 votes in this new poll. And they've got a huge game coming up. They are still unbeaten. And next up, Wednesday night, and I'll go into this more in depth later on, they got Texas Tech, the defending national runner-ups, coming into their house. Wintrust Arena, 8.30, FS1, Wednesday night. It is going to be a huge one in the Windy City. So let's break down the week that was. Butler got the week started with a strong performance out in Kansas City. They took down Missouri Monday night and then Tuesday in just an incredible game against another unbeaten team, Stanford. 
Went right down to the wire, especially back and forth in the final minute of play. But Butler came out on top. And the reason why, they're always reliable senior Kamar Baldwin. He has made big shot after big shot throughout his career in a Butler uniform. Tuesday night was no exception. He made two huge shots, including a step back that won Butler the game. And it was vintage Kamar Baldwin. And that was what I needed him to do and what I expected him to do at that tournament and in a game like that where the stakes are high. Getting a Feast Week championship is always a big deal and it can really propel a team so high up moving forward. And that's what's happening with this Butler team. So now they got that challenge out of the way, but now they got a three-game gauntlet coming up. Tomorrow night, they're at Ole Miss. Saturday, they get Florida at home. And then the following Tuesday, they're at Baylor, who won the Myrtle Beach Invitational. This, I think, will really define who Butler really is. Because right, we, they've been playing very good basketball. There's no denying it. Now the question is, you get three Power 5 teams Two, uh, get two games in a row against SEC teams with Ole Miss and then potentially the favorite to win the SEC, Florida. I, again, I say potentially. I still think Kentucky is the best team in the SEC. But Florida is right up there, and they've proven that when they play at their best, they're one of the best in the country as seen down on the Charleston Classic. The big question with Butler... Obviously, you know what you're going to get with Kamar Baldwin. I mean, he had a phenomenal week, and he came up clutch in that win over Stanford. Baldwin right now is averaging 15.6 points a game. Butler is, according to the BPI, favored to win at Ole Miss. 55% to, about 55 to 45. The biggest thing, at least in this game against Ole Miss... Stopping Brian Tyree because in their semifinal game at the pre NIT tip off event in Brooklyn against Penn State, where they ended up overcoming a 19 point deficit to win that game and advance to the championship, where they eventually lost to Oklahoma State. Brian Tyree, a New York City native, just took over the game and made the difference in the comeback win for the Rebels. Now, this is the final game of a home-and-home, as will the Florida-Butler game on Saturday. I'm just really intrigued to see what Butler is made of during this next stretch. I certainly didn't think they would be a top 25 team at this point. I really, really didn't. I thought they would have at least one loss under their belt by now. At least one. I thought they would lose a game in Kansas City. But... They came up big, especially in that game against Stanford. Baldwin had 22 points in just the last minute or two of the game. He just took over. And that's the kind of senior-led performance that he should be putting up in a game like that. Notable other stats. I thought Bryce Golden was really sharp. The sophomore from Virginia, I mean, he put up. 12 and 5, Bryce Enzi at 13 and 8. The bench also did pretty well. They 
combined for a dozen points. Meanwhile, Stanford's bench, in an eight-man rotation, they only put up two. And that and those two points were from James Keefe, freshman from L.A. So now, got to make sure that Baldwin doesn't have to lead a one-man show moving forward. Because these next three games are going to be really, really tough. The next three after that aren't as tough. They get Southern and UL Monroe notably at home, and then they got the Crossroads Classic in Indianapolis. It won't be a Hinkle Fieldhouse, but the annual event featuring the best Indiana basketball teams out there. Butler's got Purdue. Indiana will face Notre Dame at Bankers Life Fieldhouse, the home of the Pacers. And they face a Purdue team that's already lost three games this year. They lost at home to Texas. They blew a huge lead at Marquette. And they lost to Florida State in the championship game in the Emerald Coast Classic in overtime. That's another that's this has become a game that Butler can now win because of the way they've played. About BPI says otherwise. But Butler's got a real chance now to cement themselves as a legitimate NCAA tournament team. Right now, they're playing like it, but they have more opportunities to prove that moving forward because, you know, of their next six games, four of them are against Power 5 teams and pretty solid teams at that. All four teams that I think are, at the start of the season, I thought were going to make the NCAA tournament. Not sure about it now. You know, that remains to be seen, but they are NCAA tournament caliber. How do I see the week faltering out for Butler? I think they're going to end up splitting the week. I I think they're going to somehow go into Oxford and beat Ole Miss. But against Florida, I I just don't think they're going to have enough to beat Kerry Blackshear and company. Florida's playing really strong basketball right now. They really are. I mean, I know they're out of the top 25 and kind of confused as to why that is, but after such a shaky start where they lost to Florida State and UConn, you know, they've looked strong since. Winning the Charleston Classic, and then I know Black Friday didn't look too sharp against Marshall. They only won by six. But this is still a really strong Florida team. Because they got more outside of Kerry Blackshear. Andrew Nemhard, Scotty Lewis, Quez Glover. It's going to take an army and a full team effort to stop that attack from the Florida Gators. And Butler is really favored to win that game, but I I just don't think they're going to have enough to win that game. I It's just really hard for me, unless Butler puts up a really strong performance at Ole Miss, for me to believe that they can beat Florida. I know they'll keep it close. I'm not denying that, and I think that's what's going to happen. But do I think they're going to win? I just don't see it. I think just Florida's just too good and too athletic to lose a game like that. And I think they're the kind of team that can put together a game plan that could slow down Kamar Baldwin and keep the supplementary scoring at a minimum. 
So Butler moving into the top 25, great for them, but they, again, they're going to really be put up to the test over the next week or so. So, moving on to the other big story, DePaul. They now got 18 votes to their name. And this week, this past week, excuse me, they got down big at halftime against Central Michigan, a high-scoring team that entered the night averaging over 100 points a game. And they were down 18 at halftime. It was 50-32. to 32. Not only did they come back to win, they covered the spread. It was 11 points going into the game. And they outscored the Chippewas 56-25 to 25 in the second half to come back and win by 13 points. What a turnaround for the Blue Demons. Paul Reed was phenomenal. 23 points, 11 rebounds, 10 of 17 from the field. And how about Charlie Moore? Played all 40 minutes, 13 assists. They were really distributing the ball well all night. They had 20 assists on 34 field goals made. Which shows that DePaul knows how to share the rock and score it. This is an incredibly selfless team. They have a lot of talented guys, but no one true superstar. Any one of those guys, whether it be Charlie Moore or Paul Reed, Jalen Coleman-Lands, Jalen Butts, even Romeo Weems who had an off night that night, any of them can step up and have a big game when necessary. As a matter of fact, DePaul starters scored 78 of the 88 points. Reed had 23, Coleman Lance at 21, Charlie Moore with 18 with those 13 assists, and then Jalen Butts had a double-double also, 15 points and 11 rebounds. And they also held Central Michigan to just 38% shooting. That's hard to do with that Chippewa team that quickly moves up the floor and they like scoring a lot. And then in a game that I, I wasn't sure that they would win initially, but as time went on, I'm like, you know what? I think they can go into Minnesota and win. And that they did. It was a hard-fought game all along. DePaul holds on. They win by five. Charlie Moore, 21 points and 12 assists. I think it's fair to make the argument that he could be potentially a all-Big East first-team caliber player with the way he can score and pass. He is a game-changer. He really is. Paul Reed's also got that first-team contact with the numbers he's put up. Even though he only had 11-9 and nine against Minnesota, the numbers speak for themselves. He has been so strong all year long. So now things are going to get a little more difficult because now this week coming up, again, big game against Texas Tech, who's now out of the rankings after losing both games out in Vegas over Thanksgiving weekend. So a two, three-game homestand that starts with Texas Tech on Wednesday night on FS1. BPI still favors Texas Tech. But man, if DePaul somehow gets a win in this game, I think we're legitimately talking about a team that could finish in the top four of the Big East. And I really believe that. Just imagine if DePaul somehow goes into Big East play undefeated. And they open up four weeks from today 
against the preseason favorites from Seton Hall. And if you're Dave Lato and company, you got to be rooting for that. To stay unbeaten going into that matchup with the Pirates. But again, you got to take it one game at a time. That's the mentality they've had. It's worked for them. They can't think of Texas Tech as the defending national runner-ups. They cannot let intimidation get to them. They got to play their brand of basketball. Don't let Texas Tech dictate the pace and tempo of the game. And if all goes well and that plan gets executed, I think DePaul can win this game. Do I? If I were to make a pick on the spot right now, I'd still go with Texas Tech. But I'm not discounting the Blue Demons. I really think they do have a shot to take down the Red Raiders. But Chris Beard and company, coming off back-to-back losses, I just think they're going to come out with an edge to them, considering they had just lost to another Big East team, Creighton, which I'll get into them in just a second. I think they're going to come out with a little more motivation in this game. And I think that's going to drive them to the point where like we, Chris Beard's probably in the locker room saying, there's no way we can lose this game. At all. But I think DePaul's going to have something to say about that. And I will say this, I think they'll also, they follow that up with a Sunday game late afternoon, it'll be 4 Central time when it tips off against Buffalo on FS1. That was a game that was really recently added to the schedule, like, Maybe like a month or two before the season started. I think DePaul's going to win that game also. And then they close out the homestand on December 14th against inner city rival UIC. So, I think I still think DePaul's going to have a one-in-one week. But it will be a dogfight against Texas Tech. I really believe that. Speaking of Creighton... They were out in the Las Vegas Invitational, and they looked bad against San Diego State. They got just run out of the gym, an 83-52 to defeat. Malachi Flynn went off for 21 points, and the most points of any score for Creighton was Mitch Ballack with a dozen. And then their second lead scorer was Sharif Mitchell off the bench with 10. Just not a good night for the Blue Jays, but credit San Diego State. They're still unbeaten. They won that tournament title by beating Iowa in the title game, and I think they're going to be a team that could turn the Mountain West from a one-bid league with Utah State. Could be a two-bid league now with how well the Aztecs have played so far. But credit Creighton for bouncing back against Texas Tech, and they, they nearly blew that game too. Thankfully... They came back strong. I mean, they were up 14 at the half against the Red Raiders. Texas Tech came back, forced overtime, but Creighton outscored the Red Raiders 9-2 in the final five minutes. Led by Marcus Zigorowski, 32 points, a career high for him. How about Tyshawn Alexander, too, with 12 rebounds? 6-4 guard showing a lot of internal strength there. So Creighton salvages a one-on-one trip. They get a good win against Texas Tech. And now they got to move forward. They were able to get short-term memory after getting just 
just destroyed by San Diego State. And bounce back with a strong win against Texas Tech. Now, this week, they get Oral Roberts in Nebraska. I feel like they're going to win both games. I really do. Just a matter of how they play in those games. Because they have struggled against lesser competition. They have... They've won those games, but they haven't played as well as they should, in my opinion. Again, got to have a 2-0 week moving forward if they want to keep themselves in the conversation for the NCAA tournament. Because right now, they're firmly on the bubble. They have the talent to make it, without a doubt. But right now, the biggies just seems so loaded. And with the way Creighton's played, they still seem like a bottom four team to me. And they got opportunities now over the next six games where they can where they can change that. And they get Oral Roberts in Nebraska this week. Following week, they get UT Rio Grande and Oklahoma. And then they close out at Arizona State and then against Midland University. Where Creighton has a 99.9% chance to win that game for the record, according to the BPI. So, what else happened this week? Well, the marquee event was the Battle for Atlantis, and Seton Hall was in the main event of night one against 11th-ranked Oregon. And Seton Hall, four-point lead at the half, and then they came out firing in the second half. They scored the first 15 points of the second half to take a 19-point lead. And that's kind of all where it fell apart. Miles Powell, there wasn't, I mean, there was obviously a huge incident where Miles Powell, after making a three pointer from the corner in front of Oregon's bench, going back on defense, he was tripped up by an Oregon player. The Oregon player apologized afterwards, but even though it seemed unintentional at first, the more the replays happened, the more we realized it was intentional. And I'll, I won't shy away from it. That's a Bush League move. And, and I, I'm not trying to say that, you know, like, I, I'm absolutely going to support Seton Hall blindly and blah, 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 blah. That's not the case. 2015, when the whole Sterling Gibbs punching incident happened on Ryan Archidiacono at Villanova, I, you know, I said Sterling Gibbs acted wrongly, inappropriately. So, I, I just can't show any bias because I've seen unsportsmanlike moments in college basketball before and with my own eyes. In person, I saw that because I was broadcasting that game with WSOU, our radio station there. And that move just... I think that lit a fire under Miles Powell because second half, he just came out smoking hot. Finished the game with 32 points. But the rest of the scoring for Seton Hall just didn't come. Mamu Kelishvili and Kale were the only two other guys with at least 10. The only other starter to score was Quincy McKnight. He only had one point. And he only took one shot. And he also got hurt. Which didn't help anyone's case. Like he was cramping up. Thankfully the bench did come up with some solid performances. 
They combined to score 16 points. Two each from Obiago and Reynolds. Three each from Nelson and Roden. Six from Tyree Samuel. I'm telling you, this freshman, Tyree Samuel from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He is going to be a factor for the Seton Hall team moving forward. And with the talent that he has and what he can do with his size at six foot ten, he could potentially, if he plays like this and continues to develop more and more as time goes on, he could potentially be a lottery pick. Potentially. I know it's a stretch right now because he's only a freshman, but just look at the tangibles that he has. Six foot ten, strong rebounder. Developing a strong jump shot and is strong enough to be a good rebounder and a stronger rim attacker. He's got all those tools that guys in the NBA want to see. They want taller guys who are athletic and can do everything. And Tyree Samuel right now can do everything. He's got to work on his dribbling and passing a little bit, but he's got a lot of those tools that a lot of these scouts want to see. But anyways, just losing that game was just embarrassing for Seton Hall. I know Oregon was ranked higher and whatnot, but in a winnable game like that, considering you had been in that spot earlier this year against Michigan State, you got to close it out. And I will say this, Kevin Willard did not handle the final minutes of that game the way he should have. He burned his last time out with just under three minutes to go, and the substitutions that he was making and the players he had out there on the floor down the stretch were not ideal. Like, I know Shavar Reynolds is a great defender, but he should not be out there when the game is on the line. Absolutely not. And I know Quincy McKnight was out. And apparently he put Miles Kale in the doghouse, which I'll get more into that. But you just can't have Shavar out there. I'm sorry, you can't. Because he took an ill-advised drive to the rim that ended up in a missed layup. And then Oregon comes back down the floor. Payne Pritchard misses a shot, but Shakur Justin rebounded the air ball, put it back up, and that was the ball game. It was just such a humiliating way to go down. So moving on to the Southern Miss game. They handled business. They crushed Southern Miss, who was projected to finish dead last in Conference USA, 81-56. to A really strong defensive effort. Miles Powell had 18 points. Mamu had 14. And then Miles Kale only played, five point, uh, played 18 minutes and scored 5 points. And after the game, Kevin Willard was just... Not happy. I mean, he was still really upset about how the Oregon game went. He said he didn't lose sleep. And he also cited that he knows about people complaining about him on Twitter. He doesn't have a Twitter account, (laughs) which is the weirdest thing about all of this. But he knows. And he acknowledges it. And then, for him to say that he's giving... Miles Kale, the Desi Rodriguez treatment, and if you want to know what that is, Desi Rodriguez had somewhat of an attitude and body language program a couple years ago in a game at Creighton early on in that game, and he ended up getting benched for the rest of the game by Kevin Willard. 
in what turned out to be a blowout loss. And people questioned it. I, for one, questioned it. I I was wondering, what could he have done so wrong to get that punishment? I want to know what Miles Kale did so wrong to get that punishment. And according to Kevin Willer, he said that he was done being nice to him and he wanted some edge to him. My guess is because maybe he thinks he's getting too soft. He doesn't have that edge and toughness that he had had in the last two years. Now, I understand the sentiment of it. I do. You want your players to be tougher in order to maximize their potential. I get that. But to publicly call them out like that, I I think it's a, a bit too much for me. Now, I'm not saying that Kevin Willard's a bad head coach or anything. I, I'm just saying that he just could have handled things a little bit better. That's all. And as it showed in the Iowa State game, Miles Kale did get a lot tougher. And it was a one-point game with Iowa State in the lead at halftime. And Miles Powell was kept in check. But the offense came alive in the second half. Miles Kale... Looked like he wanted to prove something, and he did. He had 12 rebounds. He's six foot six, and he grabbed a dozen boards to lead the hall. The next closest had half that amount. And that was Mamu, who had six point six rebounds, but he had 18 points to compliment Powell, who had 24 for the game. Romaro Gill also stepped up big with seven points. And then Quincy McKnight coming off those cramps had a dozen. It was a good all-around game, if you ask me. They did a good job of limiting Tyrese Halliburton. Although he did have 19 points and 7 assists, I mean, compared to how he played the game before against Alabama, it was a good, solid defensive effort combined against him. And now, strangely enough, because of how everything is shaped out with this tournament and with the whole schedule, now they got to play Iowa State again, but now they got to go to Ames and play at Hilton Coliseum on Sunday night at 9 Eastern. And that's going to be on ESPN too. Hilton Coliseum is a really, really tough place to play. I think Iowa State fans, considering they just lost to Seton Hall, I think they're going to be fired up and want immediate payback. It's going to be a raucous atmosphere. And Hilton Magic could be alive and well. It's going to be up to Seton Hall to stifle it. St. Louis wasn't a tough road environment. It's not. And I just... You can't say that it's a tough road environment. It's a small building. It's not really known for being a loud and tough place to play. Hilton Coliseum is. And it's been known like that for years. Can Seton Hall handle the pressure? Because if you think that's going to be a raucous atmosphere, just wait until the following Saturday at the rack against Rutgers for the Garden State Harwood Classic. Like, that place is going to be at a fever pitch. Especially if Seton Hall goes on to win at Iowa State and potentially moves up in the rankings into the top 15 and unless crazier things happen, maybe into the top 10. Who knows? Do I think Seton Hall is going to win at Iowa State? Earlier this year, I did. Both teams have seen each other now. Now it's going to be up to both coaches. Kevin Willard, 
on the Seton Hall side, who John Rothstein has said makes more adjustments than a chiropractor. And I really want to see what Iowa State can make adjustment-wise because their losses so far this year, Seton Hall being one of them, and the other loss, they lost to Oregon State. Like, that's not a good Pac-12 team to lose to. And then they also lost to Michigan in a tight game to open the tournament and then, obviously, Seton Hall. I still think Seton Hall is going to win the game, but boy, is it going to be a battle. And it's going to be a wild atmosphere. And then, speaking of high scores, Marquette had one over the weekend. Down in the Orlando Invitational, keep in mind, Marcus Howard in the last game before this, in their last tune-up, had scored just... 11 points. He only took six shots and scored 11 points in their win over Robert Morris in their last game before this tournament. 73-63 win over Davidson to start the tournament. Marcus Howard, 40 points, 11-26 shooting. Really solid night. I know it's under 50%, but still. 40 points on 26 shots, pretty good. And then if you thought that was good, wait until you saw the semifinal game against USC the following night. 51 on 24 shots, 14 of 24 from the field. And for three-point range, 9 of 17. He was simply incredible. 91 points in the first two games. He could have laid a goose egg against Maryland on Sunday and he still would have averaged 30 points. Funny thing was, he came close to it because Maryland had the game plan to defend him. They stifled him so badly, and he only scored six points. He went one of 12 for the field, and Maryland exploited the problem that everybody knows about. If Marcus Howard can't get going, chances are you're going to win. And the two guys that did step up, and I will give a lot of credit to them for doing so, Brendan Bailey and Sakari Adam combined for 48 of their 63 points. Brendan Bailey at 27, seven three-pointers made out of 12 attempts, 10 for 16 from the field. Sakari Anum at 21, 9 of 14 from the field, 3 of 4 from behind the arc. But again, it just wasn't enough because Maryland is Maryland's the real deal. Anthony Cohen's the real deal, 22 points. And if there were to be an MVP of that game, no doubt to me it's Daryl Morsell. 17 points, 10 assists. He was doing every little thing to stifle Marquette on offense and defense, and he made the difference in Maryland blowing them out. And now Maryland is top three team. They get Seton Hall later in the year at the Rock in, on December 19th. That's going to be a really fascinating game because depending on certain things, they could be the number one team in the country going into that game. Potentially. But if you're Marquette, you got to find a way to patch things up when Marcus Howard it doesn't have his stuff. Because in the two losses where he didn't, they paid the pl- they paid the price dearly against Wisconsin and Maryland. Now you got to make those adjustments. You got Jacksonville on Wednesday and then at Kansas State on Saturday 
for a late game in the Little Apple, Manhattan, Kansas. Xavier Sneed's still at Kansas State. He's been a solid player. Right now, the Wildcats, they're 4-2 and two right now. And their losses so far this year, they've lost to Pittsburgh and then an ugly loss against Bradley on Wednesday where they got to score 35-23 to 23 in the second half. That's a winnable game for Marquette. I feel like they're going to end the week 2-0. and It's going to be an awfully tough game to win, but I think Marquette's going to find a way to lead the Little Apple with a victory. And then they get 10 days off, and they close out the non-con with Grambling, North Dakota State, and Central Arkansas. Those are all three games they should absolutely win, without a doubt. Still, I got a 2-0 week for Marquette, and I think Marcus Howard is proving that he should not be playing second fiddle to Miles Powell in the Big East, and his performance in Orlando this weekend definitely showed why. While Marquette's performance and Marcus Howard's performance was impressive, what wasn't impressive was Providence in the Wooden Legacy. I thought they would advance to the title game and get a shot to play Arizona, but that just wasn't meant to be. Matter of fact, I don't think you could have had a worse week. Well, you could unless you lost all three games in that tournament against... Well, I mean, here's the list of teams they did lose to. They blew a huge lead against Long Beach State on Thanksgiving where they got scored 38-28 in the second half. And their leading scorer was Luan Pipkins. He only had 12 for the game. The only other guy that scored double digits was Alpha Diallo with 11, and then they had pretty balanced scoring other than that. Every, every player that played, and there was nine of them, all scored. But they didn't do enough to win the game, and they blew a huge lead against Long Beach State. And that cost them. I think it affected them mentally because they also got out to a halftime lead against Charleston. They were up two at the half. It was 29-27. And then in the second half, offense just stayed non-existent and Charleston just came up big and came back and won, 63-55. And David Duke scored 40% of Providence's points. Alpha Diallo had 13 and Emmett Holt had 11 but where was everybody else? Five five guys didn't score. Half of their team that played didn't score. The only other guys that scored were Nate Watson with seven and A.J. Reeves with two. And they let Grant Riller go off for 29. It was just mind-boggling. I'm like, what is going on with Providence? Luckily for them, they salvaged a win Sunday night against Pepperdine. And that there they only won by three. And they let... Pepperdine chip away and stay in the game. And they let Colby Ross go off for 29 points. You know, credit Providence for having a nice, well-balanced offensive attack. You know, thankfully, their bench players stepped up. A.J. Reeves and Nate Watson each had 15 points to go with Diallo and Duke, who combined for 23. But there have been so many problems for Providence. They need to patch them up. They're 5-4 and four right now. And the next... Four games to close out the non-conference slate. Three of four of them are pretty tough. They're at Rhode Island Friday night. And Rhode Island's expected to win. 
However, Providence has had Rhode Island's number recently. In this decade, they've won eight of nine meetings. The only year they lost was back in 2017. And Fats Russell's still there, averaging 21 points a game. He is going to be a problem to defend for Providence. And Providence has let star players on other teams just have their way. They can't let that happen against URI, and they can't let it happen moving forward. After that, they got Stony Brook on December 14th, and then the last two games in non-conference, they get Florida at the Barclays Center on December 17th, and then they close out against Texas at the dunk in a nationally televised game on Fox December 21st. I think if you're Providence, just to have a fighting shot at the NCAA tournament going into conference play, right now they're far out of it. I think they need to win three of their last four out-of-conference games if they want any remote shot and any confidence going into Big East play to possibly make the NCAA tournament because right now they don't look like it. Not in the slightest because they're losing to teams that everybody knows they should beat. And that's a major problem for me. Right now, I thought they'd be 8-1. and one. Right now, they're 5-4. and four. They're not where they want to be right now, but they're still trying to make adjustments and make things right. And it all starts with that big game at Rhode Island on Friday night. And they need to play with tenacity, the, the, something that they lacked over the last three games that they played out in Anaheim. In-state rivalry game, you got to come ready to play. Because in games like that, oftentimes it's the team that wants to win it more that ends up winning the game. And Providence has to want it more than Rhode Island. That's the bottom line. And then in other action, I mean, there were a couple cupcake games going on. Villanova played LaSalle Sunday night, and they got out to a big lead. They were up 20 at halftime at the Finn, and they let LaSalle chip away. They ended up winning the game 83-72. to And you just, if you get out to that big of a lead, you just cannot let LaSalle get back into it. But I will say this, though. Justin Moore was tremendous in this game. This was his coming out party. 25 points on 9 of 15 shooting. And keep in mind, this is him coming off the bench. Coles Wider got the start in place of him. That's his first start of the season. He only scored five points. And then Justin Moore, he definitely played more like the starter. 25 points, 9 of 15 from the field, 2 of 4 from behind the arc, 5 of 7 from the charity stripe. He also had a trio of rebounds and assists to go along with it. And then Sadiq Bay, 19 points. Colin Gillespie, 14 points. Overall, I mean you got to be happy with Nova winning the game, just not happy with the way that they played. So now you got two more Big Five games in Philly coming up. you got Penn at the Pavilion on Wednesday. And keep in mind, Penn upset Nova last year at the Palestra and ended up winning the Big Five challenge because of it. Which basically ended Villanova's monopoly at the time on the Big Five in Philly. 
Villanova's going to want revenge big time for that. But Penn has been pretty good. They're 5-3 and three right now, and they have some pretty quality wins. They went on the road and beat Providence. They won at Alabama on opening night. They also scored a huge win against UCF and played pretty well against Arizona in a 10-point defeat. And Arizona is looking like a legit second weekend team, and Penn played them tough. All the credit in the world to them. Biggest guy to contain for the Quakers is Jordan Dingle, averaging 17 points. And another guy to watch for, A.J. Brodeur. He's averaging 8 rebounds and 5 assists. This is a big guy who can distribute the ball. I mean, in a way, he's a lot like Nikola Jokic with the way he can play the game with his size and his ways of passing the ball. Now the big question is, does Justin Moore earn his spot back in the lineup? What kind of route does Jay Wright go? Because Cole Swider, in his starting spot on Sunday, didn't do so well. Justin Moore came off the bench and played great. Does Jay Wright want Justin Moore coming off the bench now because of what he did? Who knows? And then they play at St. Joe's, a team who's 2-6 and six right now on Saturday. Ryan Daly is pretty much the only guy to worry about with St. Joe's, and if Nova can stifle him and they do their scouting report right and execute that plan, they're going to win that game. Simple as that. I see a 2-0 week for them, and that's going to give them the confidence they need moving forward because after that they get a shockingly good Delaware team that's now getting some attention. They're undefeated. They're 8-0 eight, they're eight right now. This isn't going to be just a layup game for the Wildcats. Delaware, I think Delaware is going to give them some fits down at the Prudential Center in the Never Forget Tribute Classic. I really do. You know, but that's a ways away. Just take care of business the next two games in Philly. Get to 3-0 and against your big five rivals. And you'll be in good shape because you got Delaware coming up and then a big game against potentially the number one team in the country, Kansas, on December 21st before Biggie's play starts for them four weeks from today at home against Xavier. Speaking of Xavier, they won big on Saturday against Lipscomb. Final score in that one was 87-62. Finally, the offense showing some life. Tyreek Jones was phenomenal. Grabbed 10 rebounds and also scored 14 points to go along with that. Paul Scruggs had the team high with 15. Najee Marshall with 13. How about Zach Fremantle coming off the bench with 15? Gotta love the effort off the bench from the freshman. And then five from Kai Kai Tandy in his team debut. I know that was his first game, but this freshman, he's got all the talent in the world and all the potential in the world. It's only game number one. He's got a lot of time to develop. And even though they fell out of the top 25, big week coming up. They get Green Bay on Wednesday, and then a huge matchup Saturday night against Cincinnati. Gotta love the, that Crosstown shootout sponsored by Skyline Chili. I mean, that is a staple in Cincinnati. But talking about this game, Jerron Cumberland's the guy to watch. All-American candidate. Averaging 15.5 points a game. But he's had his struggles. We know how good he can be. He just hasn't gotten to that level yet. He's been battling some injuries. 
But believe me, in a game like this, expect him to be ready to put on a monster performance and put on a show. Meanwhile, Paul Scruggs is looking really good. I mean, he's averaging 15 points, but even better, 51% from the field, 80% from the charity stripe. It's going to go down to the wire, as it always does between these two crosstown foes. And I think Xavier's going to win. I think they're going to come out of this week 2-0. I think they're going to move back into the top 25. And after that, you know, got a couple of road games after that. You're at Wake Forest the following Saturday, and then you get Western Carolina in between that, and then at TCU December 22nd to close out non-conference play. So Xavier could realistically enter Big East play at 12-1, which will put him in a really good position to, you know, get them in a position where they could get a top five seed in the tournament, be amongst the top 20 seeds, you know, fielded by the NCAA tournament committee. And then St. John's took care of business against Wagner. No problem there. They won big, 86-63. Mustafa Heron, after struggling over the weekend in Connecticut at the Hall of Fame Invitational. Put up 18 points, 7-11 from the field. How about LJ Figueroa leading the team with 6 assists? Josh Roberts nearly had another double-double, 12 points, 9 rebounds. Julian Champagny, 12 points and 3 rebounds. Rasheem Dunn off the bench. I think he's got to earn the starting point guard job eventually. He had 14 points. Off the bench, 5 of 13 from the field. And then Marcellus Erlington, 9 points as well. So St. John's, I mean, they have the pieces and the depth that, you know, play well and beat some good teams. They just haven't been able to do so yet. I mean, no disrespect to UMass or any of the other teams they've beaten. They just haven't beaten anyone good and the one really and the two really good teams that they played so far Vermont and Arizona State both losses so now they get St. Peter's Tuesday night game they should absolutely win by a lot in my opinion so you get that and now Saturday afternoon high noon tip off first game of the year for them at Madison Square Garden against West Virginia and that is going to be a tight one. West Virginia is getting some votes. They're still undefeated at 7-0. So far, wins against Akron, Pitt, Northern Colorado, Boston U, Northern Iowa, Wichita State, and Rhode Island as they claimed the title in a, uh, in a Feast Week tournament down in Cancun, Mexico. Oh, wait, no, that Rhode Island game is a home game. They uh, they beat Wichita State to win the title down in Cancun last week. For some reason, St. John's just knows when the lights shine brightest, and in those games, they shine bright. Their brightest stars excel in these situations. Guys like LJ Figueroa and Mustafa Heron. Maybe a guy like Rasheem Dunn finally getting his first game in the guard. Maybe he can step up and have another monster performance. The big thing is, got to contain Jermaine Haley. He's shooting 68% from the field. you got to find a way to stifle him and keep him from putting the ball in the basket and getting easy looks. 
Another possible strategy, he's only sh- he's shooting under 60% from the charity stripe. Maybe an idea, sending him to the line. Maybe playing hack-a-shack with him a little bit. Not a bad idea. I think it's a coin flip between these two teams, but if I were to give the edge, i got to give it to St. John's in the garden. That crowd's going to be fired up and ready to go. I think the team's going to be fired up and ready to go, and that's going to give them the edge in a game like that. And then finally, Georgetown, man. After, after having such a strong week in the New York City the week before, you know, upsetting Texas by 16 and then hanging tough with Duke, they come out on Saturday against UNC Greensboro. And I know UNC Greensboro is a strong team, but they just laid an egg in that game and they lost after a three point halftime lead. They lose 65 to 61. Only two guys in double figures for Georgetown. Akinjo led the way with 12, but he only shot 4 of 15. Omer Yurt 7, 10 points, 9 rebounds, and he, a dismal 3 for 12. I mean, it was a struggle for almost everyone on the Georgetown team, especially in the starting five. Shot just 21 of 57 from the field. UNC Greensboro wasn't much better. They shot 38% on 24 of 63. However, they let a bench player, Keyshawn Langley, kill him off the bench. The freshman had 11 points in 24 minutes. And then you also had Massey and Dickey with 10 each. And it, it just was just disappointing to see Georgetown come out and just to lose. And it's disappointing because they came out so flat. It was disheartening, to be honest with you. Now, I know UNC Greensboro is a solid team, but that's a game Georgetown should win. I knew it was I knew it was going to be a close one, too, but again, that was a winnable game that they let slip out of their hands. And that's not going to look good to, to the committee come March. So now you got a two-game road trip coming up at Oklahoma State and at SMU. Both teams are still unbeaten. And you, I feel like you absolutely cannot leave the Southwest with two losses to your name. You just can't. You got to find a way to win one of them. At Oklahoma State Wednesday night is part of the Biggie's Big 12 pack. Oklahoma State just won the championship at the Barclays for the preseason NIT. They destroyed Syracuse and then they beat Ole Miss down pretty good. So now the question is, What's Georgetown made of? Can they step up like they did in New York? The biggest thing with Georgetown, inconsistency. I, even if they win both games, it'll just show that it's an inconsistent pattern where they could play so well one week, play poorly the next, and then get back to playing well the following week. It just can't go on like that. They need to develop some sort of consistency for the final stretch of non-conference play. They got six games to go, these two games down in, in Oklahoma and Texas. And then, after that, they get Syracuse in a rivalry game at Capital One Arena. And that's a game they have to win. Syracuse hasn't looked great at all. They looked horrible in the Barclays during that uh, preseason NIT where they just got smacked both times by Oklahoma State and Penn State. Both teams are going to be fired up and ready for this game. There's no denying it. 
Who's going to want it more in a rivalry game like that, though? Similar to Providence, Rhode Island, but these two teams, they just go way back in the old Big East. Got Jim Beheim coaching against Patrick Ewing. Nothing better. And I'm hoping to get someone on next week to help me preview this game. I mean, it's such a marquee matchup. It's going to be on 1 Eastern on Fox. That's the kind of rivalry that just breeds national television, you know? And it's a game that everyone's going to look forward to. And then after that, they get UMBC, Samford, and American. All games they should absolutely win. I just feel like you got to come in to Big East play with no more than five losses. Ideally, you want to go nine and four to go into conference play with that record. And if you're Georgetown, you know, the biggest thing again with them, just develop consistency. That's the bottom line. So I know it's a long-winded segment, but I got a much shorter one coming up after this. So don't go anywhere. I got a special interview with St. John's alum and current forward on the Canton charge, Sir Dominic Pointer. So don't go anywhere. This is the Igloo. Welcome back inside the Igloo. I've had a couple Big East alums in here before, but my first G League Big East alum on the show from St. John's, class of 2015, Sir Dominic Pointer from the Canton Charge. Sir Dom, thanks for coming inside the Igloo today. Thanks for having me. All right, so first things first, um, before we get into more of the St. John's talk, I knew you were born and raised in Detroit, and when you were about 10, 11 years old, that's when the Detroit Pistons were really, really good, making it to a couple finals and winning the championship in 2004. Um, anyone from that that you kind of idolized growing up? Um, you know, the whole team, just the way they, they play, you know, um, from Tayshawn, from Chanti to Ben, just the whole the whole atmosphere, the, the team atmosphere. I, um, I really looked up to them guys and appreciate the way they played. And uh, I like the way they played. They played as a team. They locked up. So just the whole, the whole atmosphere of the team. Did you go to any games with the Palace when you were a kid? <clears throat> oh, yeah, of course. I went to um, a lot of games. Um, when I was growing up, uh, it was at the Arvin Hills, so it went too far. You know, about 35, 40 minutes up the road. Always good. Um, not, I mean, they, Palace, Palace ain't their home anymore. They're in uh, downtown Detroit now. But yeah, uh, let's season. get let's so uh, let's get into how you got to St. John's, and that was the first real recruiting class that Steve Lavin brought in, and. You, that was the class with you, D'Angelo Harrison, and Phil Green. How did that group all come together? Um, we came together. We just kind of uh, live, kind of put it together. You know, um, he was in a rare situation where you had, I think it was like seven people leaving. Um, they had seven uh, upperclassmen, so they were leaving out. And he recruited us, and we came right in to fit in. I thought, you know, um, once Mo committed and then D'Angelo it was just they just everything just started falling in line. And I'm like, you know what? Might as well uh, join the group, start something new. It's in New York, uh, Madison Square Garden. So you can't really turn that down, you know? Oh, no, I definitely feel you. Now, during your time at St. John's, you guys definitely got better 
with each year that you played. But um, were there any big memorable moments that really stood out to you during your St. John's career? Now, I know you made an NCAA tournament appearance, and the one game that I definitely remember from your run was your your win at the Carrier Dome during your senior year at Syracuse. Is that one that really kind of stood out to you? That's true. Game went. It was perfect. It was, it was, that kind of summed up our season, you know, just like a, a revenge tour. We were, we were just trying to, you know, make the tournament and beat everybody, you know, at their home. And and was there anything added into that game specifically with Syracuse because they were in the old Big East with you guys? Of course, you know, um, it was a great rivalry when they were in the Big East, you know. Um, like I said, we ain't win there for years. <clears throat> but to finally go up there and win in the Carrier Dome against that uh, great 2-3, it was uh, just a great experience. And um, the Big East rivalry was still there. It was now, too far removed, uh, speaking so of, now there. you played two years in what was the old Big East when you had a lot more of your powerhouse teams like Syracuse, Louisville, Pitt, yeah. just to name a few. And the last two years in – the newly configured biggies with the current layout of 10 teams. What were, the, what was the big different? What were the bigger differences between the old and new biggies from playing in it? Um, the, the only different was cause we got all basketball schools um, and the new biggies, the old biggies was just like, like you said, it was the powerhouse names. It was from Syracuse one night, then you play Connecticut and the next night. And then you might, you know, go all the way down, play USC. I mean, not USC, UCF. And um, mm-hmm. every night was a hard night. It was 16 teams. So, and it, was, um, it was tough every night. Talking about just specifically, you mentioned playing in Madison Square Garden was uh, – it's obviously so much fun to play your home games there. But uh, did you prefer that or playing at Carnesecca? I prefer the garden, you know. Um, the uh, Carnesecca was a great arena, you know, but like I said, it's not like the Mecca, you know what I'm saying? The Mecca is, it, it just speaks for itself. Uh, and that's why I went there because I wanted to play at the garden. You play big games there. We, had, we always had a good crowd. Now, it was, it was love. Going was away from there, um, just specifically with the newer Big East, what was your favorite place to play in, in the new on the road? On the road, let me see. I would actually say mm. it would probably be one of the old biggest teams, Marquette. You know, um, just a great rivalry there. Um, just fun um, playing there. Um, you know, so, uh, moving on to more the professional side of your career, uh, what have you learned the most about playing at the professional level during your five years of experience there? Um, you know, just how to be a professional, you know, um, come every day, you know, ready to work hard. Um, you know, you're kind of on your own, so ain't nobody telling you what to do. So you got to be a professional every day from the way you eat to the way you move around the, the city you're in. Now, I noticed that um, at least on your roster, you have an, another Big East guy on your team, at least with J.P. McKira, but just around your um, 
professional playing career, have you been able to renew any any old rivalries from the Big East at the professional level? Uh, no, not really. You know, because um, once you get to the to this level, you know, everyone kind of spreads out. You might play somebody once, you know, but um. So, but me, I've been bouncing around for a couple of years, so I've never like got a chance to, you know, get a, a real. Uh, All right, now just talking uh, back to St. John's. Um, I now I know you've been quite a few years removed from them, and times have really changed. You know, this is their they're not on their second head coach since you left. They had Chris Mullen before, and now Mike Anderson. Um, have you? Have you been uh, keeping up with how St. John's has been doing over these last few years? And do you still keep in touch with anyone within the program? Uh, not really. Um, I um, definitely keep up with them. You know, just I watch a couple games when I can. And, um, you know, I like to see them do good. Like, you know, when they play big games, you know, so I like to watch them. But um, I don't get a chance to go back that much. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to go back eventually. Um, just when I get some time in the summer and see how checking them guys, you know, I, I met Chris Mullen. I want to go. Meet All right. So, too, so uh, last uh, but not least, um, just from, you know, your playing experience in the big East um, and really being a part of the fabric of the first two years of the real line conference, what, what makes the league and everything about it so special to you? Um, the new league is like, you you literally have to play every night. You play every team twice, and you know it's hard to beat a team twice. Um, so, and we have good teams. We have uh, the Big East is a great recruiting. You know, they're great at recruiting players and uh, tough players. You know, we still got the Big East style of play, so it's a little it's tougher than um, a lot of leagues out there. You know, um, so it's still it's still well, the Big East. Sir Dom, at the end of the day, uh, really appreciate you coming inside the igloo talking about. Your memories at St. John's and so much more. Uh, best of luck with the rest of your G League season. And again, thank you for coming on the show today. Welcome back inside the Igloo. Big shout out again to Sir Dominic Pointer of the Canton Charge and a legend at St. John's for stopping by, reflecting on his college career, and giving me some insight about the life of a G Leaguer like himself. And one of his teammates in the G League, J.P. Makura, another Big East legend, and somewhat of an infamous agitator. Trust me, I've gotten into a spat with him before, a couple times. But, if there's one thing I have learned through my experiences in the Big East and running a student section, you gotta have some level of respect for every player in the league. Even with some questionable things that they've done with Makura, you know, getting in trouble, you know, and getting arrested just a few weeks after he had been eliminated from the NCAA tournament at Xavier, you know, obviously those things don't define a person. And, you know, above all, there's just that level of respect I've always had for all of these student athletes. And even though it took me until senior year to finally get to there, I'm glad I did because what I've realized, at least about JP, is that most of the time when he does stuff like that, it's because he knows how to upset a crowd, especially on the road. 
I mean, some of the things that he did to upset people, it worked because he did it all cerebrally. Like, there was an intent and purpose behind it. There's nothing too out of the ordinary or drastic. Just little things that he knew would just upset people, like a gator chomp that he did at Wisconsin after he hit a big three to steal the game. He did the gator chomp because Florida had knocked Wisconsin out of the tournament the year before. And the way I've always seen him in terms of like his ways to irritate a home crowd, it's like a vintage wrestling heel. Like, he, he knows the right buttons he's got to push in order to upset people. That's just what he did. And I got tremendous respect for that, because if you could do that well, then you're, you're all right in my book. But I mentioned not being defined by certain mistakes in your life, which leads us into this episode's icebreaker. And this one pertains to former St. John star and a teammate of Sir Dominic Pointer, Raishi Jordan. Now, Jordan was a pretty key piece of St. John's basketball program for two years from 2013 to 15. He was amongst one of the best recruits in that class of 2013, along the likes of Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker. He was in the top 20. He was in the same company as them, coming out of Philadelphia, the streets of North Philly. He was going to stay home at Temple. Instead, he chose Steve Lavin and St. John's. And he became a really key player to their NCAA tournament team in 2015. And then he left for the draft, played 11 games for the 76ers D-League team at the time, Delaware 87ers. And then he got in trouble with the law. He was arrested in 2016 on some pretty serious charges. Amongst them, he was charged with attempted murder, robbery, criminal conspiracy, and simple assault, among others. And this is from an article from Andy Schwartz from NBC Sports Philly. And he ended up going to jail for three years. And on Sunday, I looked on social media. It might have been Saturday, now I think about it. But I saw this on Twitter uh, from the St. John's fans that, you know, I happen to follow. And I saw a picture of Raishi Jordan with someone in public. Like, freshly public. So, it's clear, it's clear now that Raishi Jordan is, is a free man now after serving a three, essentially a three-year sentence. And if you really want an insight about what happened with Rashid and what life was like for him in prison and just overall, like, a synopsis of how he even got there and what his life was like. There's a really good article by Bleacher Report that came out in 2017 about it. And the quotes and other info that they used for this 
They weren't permitted to bring in a voice recorder or a notebook. They did it all on memory, which makes it even that more impressive. But the, the quote that really stood out to me was Rashid saying, if God gives me another chance, I'm going to go far, far away from here. Meaning he's going to get away from Philadelphia in North Philadelphia, where he grew up. And the reason why was because the streets essentially corrupted him and led him down the path of crime. And he served his time and now he's free. And what's, so what's, what's the spin I'm going to take on this? Good question. Like I said before, past mistakes should never define a person single-handedly for life. They shouldn't. I know I've done a lot of wrong things in my life, but even though I even though certain things, you know, do stand out, I try, you know, I do my best to move on from them and continue to grow and be a better person. And in a, in a stronger sense, as I analogize this with a different example on Saturday, I was lucky enough to be on color commentary for NFHS on the broadcast for the class double a New York state high school football championship game between McQuaid Jesuit out of Rochester and New Rochelle High School. And one of the assistant coaches on New Rochelle, Ray Rice. Yeah, that Ray Rice, running back from Rutgers, who won a Super Bowl ring with the Ravens, and in 2014 was arrested and then eventually suspended by the NFL after video came out of him knocking his then fiance and now wife, he knocked him out, knocked her out cold in an elevator in a hotel. And it was not a pretty sight at all. Like it was, it was just an ugly, ugly thing to see. And believe me, I, you know, Ray Rice not being able to play football again. I know that hurt him a lot after the Ravens released him, it was just way too much in a PR nightmare. So you got to understand where the Ravens are coming from. And that effectively ended his football career. And it's been five years now since that happened. It's cra- and it's crazy as, as even though it's crazy how much time flies, that doesn't mean that five years later, he still can't be defined by that act. He wanted to move on from that. And it looks like he has, and he's trying to still stay involved with the game that he grew up loving and played in college, high school, college, and professionally. And he's trying to get back to that now in a different way if he, now that he can't play it anymore. And he's given back to that at the place where he grew up, the place where he played high school football in New Rochelle. And he's kept his record clean. And he's been a great influence on the kids at New Rochelle, leading them to such great success at the state level. They were state runner-ups last year. 
and they won the state championship on Saturday night, dominating McQuaid Jesuit 28 to nothing. And the running backs that he, that that team had were really good. And I feel like a lot of that had to do with Ray being able to teach them. Not just about the game of football and how to become a good running back like he was. He's teaching them about life and how to conduct themselves. And they conducted themselves, even in victory, they conducted themselves well with sportsmanship, class, and respect, and dignity. And Ray Rice, man, like, even though that he did something absolutely heinous five years ago, he refused to let that define him. And he decided... You know, for all the years of him playing the game, he wanted to give back somehow, some way. He found his way. He's taken it, and he's run with it, and he's excelled at it. Now with Rashid Jordan, now the question is, what is he going to do? I really hope he can go down a similar path like the one Ray Rice went down, where he found a way to give back to the game. Because at this point, I mean, he's been in, he's been, he was in jail for three whole years, people. And the only thing I can even equate that closely to in terms of being in jail and then coming back to play, keep in mind, Rishi Jordan is only 23 years old. Actually, not, not, he's not 23, my bad. He's, I believe he turned 25 this year. 24, 20, I believe 25. He's still young. Maybe he's still got that athleticism. The only thing I could equate that to was when Michael Vick was arrested and put in jail for the dogfighting ring that he ran back in the mid-2000s. And it took him a while to come back and play professional football. He didn't come back to the NFL until 2009 because the Falcons had already cut ties with him. So he had to find a new team and he found new life with the Philadelphia Eagles. And that was, strangely enough, three years after he had last played. But Michael Vick was just a special kind of player. I mean, he was a game changer. Number one overall pick for the Falcons coming out of Virginia Tech. Set the NFL record for most rushing yards by quarterback in a season. And in addition to that, you know, he led them to the playoffs a couple times and nearly made it to the Super Bowl back in the 2004 season. And then he came back with the Eagles and proved that he still had it. Maybe that's what Rishi Jordan will try to do. But like he said... If God wants to give me another chance, I'm going to go far, far away from here. And I know if he knows what that's what's best for him, that's what he's going to do. It's just a matter of where he's going to go, what he's going to do. And if he doesn't play basketball, I mean, it shouldn't be the end of the world because with the knowledge that he's picked up during his time in prison, you know, he can do a lot of things. He can go around and... Essentially be like a Chris Heron kind of guy where he can 
teach people about the stuff that he learned from the bad choices he made. Like with Chris Heron with drugs and alcohol. Rashid Jordan can do something similar to that with his life experiences. And be an inspiration to people to have them not go down the same path that he went down. Another thing he could do, you know, he left St. John's after two years. Maybe maybe he could go back and try to get his degree that and go back and finish what he started, which would also be really, really great for him. Either, no matter what path he chooses, I, and I hope all of you, just wish him the best and hope that he does go down that right path. And make his life better and not let that big mistake or several mistakes that he made several years ago define his past. Because now that's that's in the rearview mirror and now that he's got freedom again, now that he's out of prison, you can only hope that he's going to make something of his life and turn this really negative occurrence and somewhat of a traumatizing thing too into a positive not only for himself but for the game he loves basketball the school from which he came St. John's his hometown of Philadelphia his family especially all you can do is just hope that he can turn it around because it's never impossible to turn around. It's never too late to right your wrongs. That's going to do it for this episode of the Igloo. I'll have another episode coming up at the end of the week, and it is going to be a special one. For those of you who know me, I founded a fan group called the Sign Mafia at Seton Hall that ran for four years from freshman to senior year. We made our debut Five years ago on Friday, December the 6th, 2014, it was the inaugural Garden State Hardwood Classic between Seton Hall and Rutgers. That's where we debuted. And I can't believe it's already been near... When it gets to Friday, I just can't believe it'll be five years since that happened. A moment that really you know changed my college experience for the better. And a moment that helped gave me Brothers for Life. I'll have my the core four of us that were part of that group. Me, Tom Golombeski, Dan Letso, Andrew Smedberg will all be joining me. We're going to talk about some of our favorite experiences from our time at Seton Hall and, and the Big East Tournament, March Madness, all that. And, and, you know, we're obviously going to talk about Big East basketball right now as it is as well. So that is something you don't want to miss. I'll have that up on Friday. So until then, this is Timmy I signing off from the Igloo. Thank you for tuning in, and make sure to tune in on Friday. Until then, see you then. Enjoy your week, and I'll see you again on Friday.